With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Coming up on this week's show, how you can experience the mid-90s again in VR. Some huge Sega news on the way. And we get the inside story on Prince of Persia. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 226, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. Now, before we get into this week's show, it's probably a good thing that we are recording remotely this week. If I sound a little bit bunged up, my hay fever is driving me crazy today. So if you were here, I'd probably be sneezing snot all over you guys today. So probably for the best that we're doing it remotely, I think. <laughs> That's definitely not what we need at the moment. <laughs> Have you been uh, running in fields of wheat? Though? I think someone's been cutting the grass outside. This it's all coming in the air conditioning and everything in here today. That said, oh, we did get sent some lovely face masks, which might help out. Yeah, uh, Mark Devlin sent us some <laughs> retro face masks. These aren't going to become a product that you can all have, but um, they're awesome fun. So we're going to send the face masks to each other, take some photos of us. Maybe it will help Dan with his hay fever. That's amazing. <laughs> I'll, I'll actually stick a photo because he actually sent us one on Twitter, didn't he, of what they look like. So I'll put that on our socials and you can check it out. Thank you so much for that, Mark. That's the thing I was saying to you before, Ravi. Not the kind of thing I'll probably wear, but I think oh, I'll probably just remember this time by looking at that face mask with the Retro Hour logo on it. Yeah, there's not going to be many other periods in time where you need a face mask. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> yeah. Now, my blocked up nose aside, we have got a really good show lined up for you this week. Now, one thing I love about doing this podcast is, of course, we bring you all the retro happenings in the week. We tell everything that's been happening in the world of retro gaming. And also, we're joined by a special guest. And I love it when we get people on the show who talk about games that amazed me when I was a kid. Now, today we're going to be joined by Jordan Mechner, and he's going to be giving us the inside story on Prince of Persia. Now, I know you're a fan of Prince of Persia as well, Ravi. Oh, yeah, absolutely love that game. That was one of the first kind of, I'd say, Egyptian or like Middle Eastern experiences that you got on a gaming system. And I even remember I was at university and there were some Italian students and we were talking about computers and they were like, oh, we all love Amiga, Prince of Persia. So I got them a little 600 had Prince of Persia on. And, you know, the whole challenge with Prince of Persia was that you had to do it in one go. Yeah, in like an hour, wasn't it? Yeah, there was no saves. You had to just do that run perfectly. So they'd just sit there for the whole of university just trying to complete (laughs) Prince of Persia in one run. See, I remember seeing it. Probably it was a bit later than it came out because it was released originally in 1989 when that game came out and then I remember going to stay at my cousin's house and it would have been and I remember the date actually really well it was September 1993 and the only reason I know that is because I remember my mum buying me a copy of Amiga format to read on the train and it was the issue where they were talking about the CD32 coming out and I think that was September 93 and then we stayed at my cousin's and he had like a really old beaten up Amstrad PC And I was just really bored, like being a kid going through what he had in his hard disk. And I found this game, Prince of Persia, and I looked at it. And then when it loaded up and I saw that really fluid rotoscoped animation, that just blew my mind, even though I was playing it on like a, I don't even think it was like a 286. I think it was like a 
and 8086 at like 7 megahertz and he had a black and white screen. But even with those limitations, that animation just blew my mind because, I mean, before Prince of Persia, games just didn't look like that. No, they didn't. They didn't flow as well, did they? The characters didn't have that kind of human movement that they had there. It really, really was a revolutionary title. And this can't wait for this interview. And the story of how we did it's really interesting as well, because it turns out, I mean, you'll hear more in the interview. It was actually his brother who we kind of outlined in this technique he had called rotoscoping. And they were jumping around like a, a car park <laughs> opposite where they lived <laughs> to get those effects. And he's actually done a journal. Because, I mean, weirdly, he actually wrote down everything that he did day by day when he was developing Prince of Persia, almost like he subconsciously knew what a big deal this game was going to be. And this is something he had to document as he went along. And he's just released it as a book. So we're going to be getting the story on the development of Prince of Persia and some really interesting tales about it as well. Because, I mean, like you said then, it was ported to so many different systems. I think you worked out, was it like 33 systems Prince of Persia came out Yeah, on? over over 33 systems. I think there's a lot more than that. But that's uh, crazy the amount of ports he had at that game. It's, it's, I'd say it's up to about Lemmings level of uh, ports on different systems. Maybe Doom. And then obviously we had like the you know the PlayStation Two game that came out in the early two thousands, a movie that came out about ten years ago now as well. So really, in terms of video games franchises, Prince of Persia. I mean, it's kind of up there with you know stuff like Tomb Raider. It's massive, isn't it? It's been going for like thirty years now. And we're going to get the story on where it all began with this week's special guest Jordan Mechner coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around fifteen minutes from now. Now, let's just get straight into this week's news stories. Lots to get through this week, including possibly the quirkiest Nintendo Switch dock I've ever seen. Yeah, this is interesting because um, I've heard stuff about the Switch docks and I've seen people actually like, you know, cover them in material to stop it from scratching. And uh, a few people have had that. Well, this guy's actually turned his old NES into a massive Switch dock. And it looks quite cool, actually. What I thought was like really funny about it was I was expecting to open it and just be like a paint job or something on the actual, like on the Switch deck, on the dock. But I was so surprised that it's like a full-on NES and the guy's even laser cut out the top. And it like, it you know, it closes like a SNES, like a Super Nintendo. So it's like a <laughs> cartridge slot for it, which I thought was amazing. I absolutely love it. You know, I'd like as well, though, because a lot of people are talking about what he's done with it. I mean, essentially, he's just hollowed out an old NES, and he's put the um, the USB ports in the front of it and mounted in there as well. Some people are saying he should have left like the original components of the NES in there as well to kind of make it like a dual system. And he's also done the switches as well, so they actually work as the power switch, so the power on and the reset works as well. But I guess it's a nice use for a system that's maybe dead yeah, or one, one that's not recoverable. But I wouldn't like to see someone do this with an original NES. <laughs> yeah, there's been people hating on him already in the comments. Like, How dare you destroy a Nintendo? <laughs> but I mean, I love one comment that's on this um, this article here on Trusted Reviews. They're talking about the fact that it kind of brings Nintendo full circle. You got like, you know, the, the old school system, the, the, the earliest one that most people played, and their current gen system. So that is kind of cool to see them together as one, I guess. Yeah, because they did those SNES pads for the um, Switch. So. Wouldn't it be pretty awesome if they introduced this uh, as an official kind of dock thing? You know, you mentioned as well about the the screen scratching. I don't know about, have you found this on yours, Joe? Have you seen any scratches on your screen off the Switch dock? Uh, no, my one's been all right, to be honest, but I've probably played my Switch more on docks than I have played it docked, to be honest. Interesting. So, but I, I, can't, I can't say I've noticed anything yet. See, I, I generally play mine on the TV all the time. Yeah, I mean, I... To be honest, I need to play my Switch a lot more, but when I was with my band when we were recording, I took it with me, and that's when I hammered it the most, but obviously I didn't take the dock with me. 
So I've only played it a little bit at home. Well, I've also seen uh, the screen protectors are quite thick. So if you actually have a screen protector on it and then put it in the dock, you've actually probably got more chance of scratching I've, it as well. I've not got a screen protector on mine, so that's probably the reason. <laughs> I think next time you're hanging out with a band, though, Joe, you need to get like one of these uh, modded NES cases and just plonk that down with the switching and all right, lads, put that down in front of the TV. You, you look so cool. <laughs> he, he just needs a guitar dock. He just puts the switch inside and starts playing. That would be amazing. Well, if maybe an NES Switch dock is not cool enough for you, what about having an extra tall Game Boy? I love this. So uh, Dan and Ravi sent this one over to me earlier on today as well. And I looked at it and I was like, yeah, this is amazing. I love it. Extra tall Game Boy. It's actually by a friend of ours, the Retro Future. So what he's done while he's been in lockdown, he's done many, many great things, which Ravi was listing off just before the show. But this one's absolutely awesome. He's done an extra tall Game Boy, and I think he calls it the Big Boy or something like that. <laughs> the Long Boy. The Long Boy, that's it. And you would instantly think that it's just like a 3D printed one, but it's not. If you actually watch the video, it is two Game Boys he stuck together and like made, and like it just it looks beautiful. Like have a look at this, but it's fully functioning as well. And I just love how white he's got it as well. I think um, Elliot is probably going mad. Um, during the lockdown because he's been doing loads of these projects and it looks like he's kind of combining stuff that he's already got so um he did a, a game boy advance sp with another <laughs> screen on the top so it's like a game boy advance but double decker screen that's amazing and then he also did a nintendo ds but with just one screen so everything kind of shoved into one screen just squashed is, in is it yeah yeah and all of this is kind of just for fun but I, I find it really interesting like a lot of people's would be like what's the point in a long game boy uh, maybe more batteries <laughs> <laughs> put eight double a's in it or something yeah. <laughs> that's I amazing i love the fact that he's kind of you know using his time in lockdown to be like some mad scientist and making these like crazy yeah. concoctions <laughs> and like welding game boys together for no You're apparent probably- reason You'll probably find it something he was already planning on doing. It's just he's got all this extra time on his hands. Well, I mean, there's a video that we'll link up in our show notes, 11 minutes long, um, on his YouTube channel. And like you said then, Ravi, you, you might think, has he used the extra space to put batteries in there? He said, no, he hasn't, he hasn't done it for that reason. It's actually worse to play it like this. It's harder to play than it would be if it was a normal-sized Game Boy. Um, there's actually no advantage at all. If anything, it's a disadvantage. He did it just because, why not? <laughs> Maybe cartridge storage, if you could have a little drawer. No, he hasn't done that. No reason. No reason at all. <laughs> a, a little backpack to put cartridges in. <laughs> but the video is actually quite relaxing to watch as well, just like seeing him making this mad long Game Boy. So you definitely get a few looks if you pulled that out, like, you know, the next retro expo you go to, I think. It's a cricket bat. <laughs> Now, speaking of live streams that we've been watching, one that normally doesn't really get on most people's radar is the Microsoft Build Conference. Now, this is something they do normally in person every year, but this is for people that want to learn about, you know, Microsoft Azure, their cloud technology and their web development tools. This year, though, there's actually been a few hidden Easter eggs in their virtual one that they did. Yeah, so this is the kind of uh, Microsoft Build developer keynote. And every year that happens and it's like everybody's going around going, oh, have you managed to get access to the developer's keynote? Have you got tickets? And, you know, it's like a kind of sought after event. Well, they did it online this time and that meant they had thousands of people worldwide all watching the keynote, a lot more of a different audience than just the kind of tech elite developers. So what they decided to do was... You know, they were streaming from home. They decided to have a little bit of fun. So they've had Easter eggs that have been hidden inside the kind of keynote in the background of stuff. 
And I think this is going to start happening and you're getting more people watching conferences online and stuff. There's going to be people watching stuff back and more to spot. So first they had an eight-inch floppy disk, Microsoft cap. They also had a gold master CD-ROM, which was the original ones that uh, Microsoft used to shift their kind of products to PC makers. And then they had the Amiga Boing Ball bouncing on one of the screens in the background, which was really cool. So I, I just think it's really exciting to see them kind of referencing the old technology. They had a reference to Base64 as well, uh, ASCII desktop. So, you know, I think as more of these developer conferences come up, they're going to get geekier and geekier and a lot more fun and entertaining. Because someone actually asked um, Scott Hanselman, who was a guy who had um, the Amiga Boing Ball demo running on one of his screens while he was demoing some like cloud technology. People like, someone actually tweeted him going, why is that there? And he literally just replied to him, I love Easter eggs. So I think it's almost like, you know, because they're all doing this from home at the moment, it feels like there might be some yeah. kind of internal competition to see who can sneak the coolest thing into the background of their, their keynotes. Well, I think this is going to develop because this seems to be a great way to do it with developers. And maybe, you know, Easter eggs inside streams and videos is going to be a, a next place to go. I must admit, though, it does kind of feel like you're not going to be focusing on what, on what they're saying. Instead, you're going to be like scouring everything in the background to look for something yes, like that. Kind of going spot on. retro things. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're doing a sit through the entire Microsoft Build Conference, um, I'll put a link to that. And the little excerpt on The Verge where you can check out all these little hidden Easter eggs that they spotted. Now, maybe you really harken back to the good old days. I mean, if you listen to our podcast, there's a chance you're probably quite a nostalgic person like we are. Well, what about this? Experiencing the mid-90s again in virtual reality. This looks insane. Ravi sent this one over to us. And I, I couldn't get my head around what, what it was at first when he was trying to describe it to me. He was like, oh, yeah, you play VR and you play old games like Castlevania and Star Fox. But then, like, your mum comes in and tries to, like, annoy you and distract you. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and I had to look at the video and the screenshots. And I was like, oh, my God, that looks hilarious. Yeah, so we covered one before, which was uh, called Pixel Ripped 89. And I think you were sat in a school desk and you had to kind of be able to play on your Game Boy uh, in VR and uh, there was distractions going on and you had to make sure the teacher didn't catch you. This time it's gone into 1995 so we're looking at the consoles that were out then and uh, you know you're sat at home playing a, a, a kind of generic 90s console and then your mum's coming in you're a nine-year-old kid uh, you have to deal with her nagging at you <laughs> uh, you have to deal with bullies uh, and loads of other stuff going on so you've kind of got to switch between playing the console and dealing with these outside distractions. Nagging parents and bullies, all the things we miss about our childhood. <laughs> <laughs> the best things in the 90s. What, what gets me is like the actual list of games that you play on it looks awesome. You're like, oh, it's Castlevania, Star Fox 64. I can't remember what else the other ones were on there, but there was like eight amazing games from that. Like uh, Ro Road Rash. Road yeah, Rash. Sonic. Sonic yeah. yeah, that was it. Sonic. I was just like, yo, this is great. Essentially, it's going to be a simulator of, of what it was like when you used to play games in your bedroom and your mum came in, tidy up. It's going to be like that, really, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Put the bins out. <laughs> it's imagine that getting like points for taking the bins out. I'd have probably done it then if it was like you know, part yeah. of the game. Uh, but so if you do want to experience those uh, those days in your bedroom getting told off by your mum again, apparently it's going to be out on PC headsets, Oculus Quest as well, and um, there's going to be a P PlayStation VR version in the next few weeks too. So if you want to find out more about that and check it out. It does seem like a novel concept for a game, I've got to say. I feel like you'd get frustrated. Like you'd be like, you start really getting into like Castlevania and then you're just like, why don't I just play this normally? <laughs> 
<laughs> Go away, mom. It sounds really stressful, doesn't it? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> now, this has been all over over the last few days, and it's a story that we'll, we'll find out more about next week. Uh, but at the moment, it's really just that there is some big news about Sega coming, apparently. But no one really knows, apart from this one guy, what it is. Now, this has been released by a journalist on a Japanese gaming magazine called Weekly Famitsu. Now, that's actually one of the oldest running gaming mags in Japan. It's been going for 33 years now. And apparently in their next issue that's going to be out on the 4th of June, they're going to have a revolutionary scoop about Sega that's going to completely rile up the games industry. And apparently the journal who's behind this has said it's kind of on the level of the exclusive that Wide Magazine had on their PlayStation 5 reveal. And they've also worked out that this timing actually coincides with the company's 60th anniversary. But there is no real clue, apart from that it's going to be an earth-shattering announcement. He has revealed that it is about Sega, but that's all we know so far. You see, Sega Casino. Sega Casino. <laughs> you see, like, that would really, like, from reading the article, it would really hint towards Sega's coming back to, like, the console war, like... There's going to be a new Sega console coming out. I don't. I. That's what it feels like they're saying, but I don't think it's going to be like that. And Dan mentioned earlier on that a few people are saying what it's going to be, which I don't think is that earth shattering personally, but it's still cool. Well, there has been this rumor that I mean, it, you know, it might not be true, but I've seen it in a few places. There's a rumor doing the rounds that apparently Microsoft are in talks to acquire Sega, and that could be news that we find out about in the next month or so. Um, might be true, might not be, but I mean, it would kind of that would be a big deal though in the gaming industry. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Sega do put out some good games, you know, recently. They have put out some good gems and stuff like that. But I, I, like I say, I just can't imagine if it is that. It's not very earth-shattering. It's just going to be like, oh, yeah, Sega are going to be making games for Xbox, pretty much. If, if it, I think if it was like Ubisoft or EA, everybody would be like, no. Yeah, yeah. Microsoft, it, it seems to be a bit of a safe bet. You know? Yeah, so and I'm, I'm hoping it's something bigger than that. You know what everyone's saying, of course, all over the forums and all over the Facebook groups and everything. Dreamcast 2 is finally happening. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. I mean, I would, I'd be quite happy with a Dreamcast Mini or a Sega Saturn Mini. But once again, for the guy to be like, this is PlayStation 5 level. like <laughs> Yeah, that, that's the thing. I mean, some people have been saying, oh, it's going to be a new Sonic game. But, you know, that, that doesn't warrant that headline to me no it doesn't does it like a remake of sonic 06 yeah that would be that would be <laughs> quite got, unusual we, yeah. we mentioned it a few weeks ago <laughs> uh, you weren't expecting that were you <laughs> but i mean this... well, it's, apparently it's out on the 4th of june whatever yeah. this is so we'll find out in, in about a week from now but i mean there's not really many things that it could be apart from obviously we know the media does like to hype things up a little bit but this guy i mean he's a genuinely respected journalist in japan who works mm. for one of their biggest high street magazines from what i can see so if it is really a scoop on this level he said it's a world premiere article an exclusive he's got a huge scoop so game gear mini what what could it i mean it it either is that sega are getting back into the hardware market or it is something on the level of i mean you know sega one of the oldest video games companies in the world being bought by Microsoft or someone like that. I mean, that that would warrant headline news, I imagine. But outside of those two possibilities, I can't really think what else it would be. No, I'm tempted to ask Ravi what he think it won't be because that's he's re- he's very good at that. But Ravi's very good at predicting things that would happen. <laughs> but he always he always says, "I've got this theory, but I don't think it will be this theory," and then it always is. <laughs> 
they're, they're going to introduce the Sega guy. Sega! Yeah. He's going <laughs> <he's gonna> to <laughs> go around and keep everybody entertained in lockdown. Give it all the new Xbox adverts. <laughs> go into every yeah. street and shout, Sega! Yeah, you can imagine. <laughs> well, hopefully by the time uh, next week's show comes out, then we should uh, find out what this is. I mean, it, the, the announcement's going to be next Thursday. So if it is earth-shattering news like this guy's promising, we might have to do a bit of a late recording to uh, get it into next week's show. It does sound exciting, though. I mean, you know, it feels like the. I can't remember the last time that there was anything from Sega that I've been kind of genuinely excited uh, I, about. Like this. I'm skeptical because I'm from the Amiga community and earth-shattering news is <laughs> never earth-shattering. We've got some earth-shattering news for the Amiga community. We're bringing lemmings out again. <laughs> now, here's something that will definitely tickle you, Ravi. I know you love your trackers. Now, um, for people that might not be in the know, trackers are essentially music players from back in the day that played chip tunes, aren't they? Yeah, so before you used to have um, sequencers and everything was kind of separate. You had trackers, which were just kind of blocks of uh, code and you would uh, put the musical instrument in the blocks. And this is how a lot of music was composed for the Amiga, for the C64, for the Game Boy. Um, Later on, they did loads of stuff. Actually, even the 3DS, there was still a lot of tracker use. Well, you've always been able to use them with a computer and uh, sit there with a screen. And that's kind of been the way that you've always used Tracker. Um, but this is a new device called the Polyend Tracker. And this is a hardware-based one. And oh my God, I, I just want this so much. It looks absolutely amazing. It's like one of these little um, sequencers or kind of um, you know hardware synthesizers where you, you, you press buttons, you create the patterns. But it is all done in the Tracker format. And you can sample stuff it's got a midi in and out uh usb c support um it, it's even got a, an adapter to din which is the old old midi style it just looks absolutely fantastic and to see this done in hardware i never thought that they'd kind of create something like this and uh Actually, it's ideal because I haven't moved on from trackers. So <laughs> I'm totally out of date. You know, I kind of missed out on, I used to mess around with Pro Tracker and stuff like that, but I, I was never, I didn't experiment that much and I was never really any good. You know, I'd always lose my patience. But it was always kind of something I, I wished I'd spent a bit more time on and kind of learned it properly. But this does kind of prove, like you said, you know, you'd never moved on. It proves that if you just wait long enough, things come back round again. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and like the thing about Pro Tracker was, it was a challenge because you'd, You'd have to learn all the tricks. You'd have to kind of picture it in your head. Whereas this one, you can just see it displayed out there straight away. It's it's a button to do a command. It, it looks very easy. And uh, I think it's really going to help with live performance, actually. So I, I, I'm definitely saving up for this. You know? I've decided then, you know, those jeans I've got in my cupboard at my place that are like, you know, I've had since the year 2001 that are kind of bleached at the front. If I leave them in there another 10 years... After 30, they're going to be cool again. So that's the thing. Just Everybody's going to be wearing bleach jeans. <laughs> I just need to lose about five stone. I'm sorted. So uh, yeah, if you want to check out this uh, polyend tracker, it's called. I think this looks awesome. So essentially, it turns the tracker into an actual physical instrument, really, then, doesn't it? Because you've got this really nice display on there where you can see the old like, equalizers like you used to in Pro Tracker. You've got a mechanical keyboard. You've got a volume knob on there as well that you can cycle through the different samples and stuff. Um, a grid. Yeah, it looks it, really good. It, it could be anything, you know. I could be sat there with Joe's rock band and start sampling <laughs> him and then Do it. I want to hear it. I want to see this. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Yeah, so it becomes an actual instrument rather than just uh, uh, being a kind of delivery device. 
I think Ravi's just uh, weaseled his way into your band there, Joe. I think he has. He's the sixth member now. <laughs> so if you do want to check that out and uh, you want to save up for one of those, yeah, it's, it's expensive, but I think it is very cool. Like you said, you know, these these kind of specialist audio bits of hardware are never cheap, but I'll put a link to that and everything else we talked about in our show notes at theretrohour.com. And I look forward to the new single, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Now, before we get into our chat all about Prince of Persia with this week's special guest, Jordan Mechner, on the way very soon, you may know at the moment we are actually running a Patreon. Now, we've had this running for a couple of months now. The idea is, obviously, we're all recording the show remotely at the moment, but we do want to get together when all this is back to normal and get our own Retro Hour dedicated studio. Now, this has been a goal of ours for a while because, you know, there's a studio that we use part-time at the moment, the one that I'm in on my own right now. But we want to get our own little space built to enable us to do more content, have a space where we can do videos as well and really ensure the longevity of this show and make sure that we've got a future for you know many years to come so thank you so much for all your support so far we've been blown away with how many people have backed us on patreon and of course we get a lot of little perks on there as well uh, including our monthly patreon hangouts that have been so much fun got another one of those on the way in a couple of weeks time that of course we oh, were so good oh that they're such a giggle it's just nice to hang out and just chat about retro games and hardware and we do it on a sunday night for a couple of hours the time just flies by when we do it doesn't it yeah, 100%. yeah, and uh, you also get ad-free episodes. You get the episodes sometimes a bit early, and um, you know there's lots of tiers, so uh, lots of different kind of perks and bonuses you can get. And of course, for backing us on Patreon, you will get a shout out in a future episode in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Now we are trying to get through as many as we can each week. This week, we want to say a huge thank you to Leap and Sumo, Danny McDermott, Richard Nichols, David Hall. Carl Busby. Who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, you can back us on Patreon. All the details are in the show notes or on our website at theretrohour.com. We'll have more news for you on next week's show, hopefully. We'll let you know about that big Sega announcement if we hear it in time as well. And right now, let's get into the making of one of the most infamous games of all time, the legendary Prince of Persia, with this week's special guest, Jordan Mechner, next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for our favourite bit of the show when we welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, I've got to say, personally, I've been really excited about this week's interview where we get to dissect one of my all-time favourite gaming franchises. You know, I've still got memories, I was talking about a bit earlier on, about that first time that I laid eyes on the masterpiece that is Prince of Persia. So it's going to be incredible to get some stories about its creation with this week's very special guest. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, Jordan Mechner. Hey, Dan. Really happy to be here. I really appreciate you joining us now. I did mention then that you have got a new book out at the moment. We'll, we'll talk more about that very soon and, of course, get into a bit of the history about Prince of Persia. But I thought it might be quite interesting to start your story, you know, at the beginning. I know you got an Apple II in 1979, I read online. What was it that got you interested in computers in the first place? Well, uh, it was in high school. You know, until then, I had been sort of more into doing cartoons, comics, Super 8 filmmaking, that kind of thing. And uh, a friend of mine got uh, an Apple II. I mean, before that, there had been the TRS-80, the Commodore PET. And uh, IBM had something called the Explorers Program near our high school. They had uh, they actually opened up their campus one night a week and let us kids go in and play with their computers. So, you know, I just got hooked on programming. It was just the most fun thing. And then when I realized that these uh, the home computers, uh, like the Apple, could do graphics you know, it was sort of a way to make little animated movies. You know, at that point, all of my uh, my sort of storytelling and filmmaking 
urges just kind of got diverted into playing with this new machine. So I know you grew up in New York. Was there much of an arcade and computer scene around you at the time? Well, there were pinball machines in the uh, you know the local pizza parlor and uh, you know the the bowling alley. So Tank War, I guess, was the first video game I remember. And there was Pong, and then Space Invaders, of course, just kicked things up to another level. Yeah. So yeah, Space Invaders was the first one that I really you know lost entire rolls of quarters playing. Uh, and then uh, one of the attractions of the Apple computer as well was that there was a version of Space Invaders. It was called Apple Invader on cassette. So uh, it just saved tremendous amounts of money by being able to play Space Invaders at home rather than at the arcades. Yeah, the Apple II was not cheap at the time either. I have to say, it took a, it took a year to save up to save up the money for it. That is one thing. But then you really had to be invested in wanting a computer. It's not like today where you can get like a Raspberry Pi for you know pocket change. But then there were expensive machines. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was twelve hundred dollars uh, in nineteen seventy nine for a, a plain Apple II. It didn't even have a monitor or a cassette tape recorder or anything. You know, it was real money back then. It you know that was my entire life savings. How did you start making games yourself then, going from being a player to a programmer? Well, making games was kind of the, that was the thing to do with the computer. I mean, there weren't enough games to make, you know, that you could just spend all your time playing games. Sort of the, the challenge of making them was the point. You know, I started making games in basic and then gradually kind of picked up assembly language, mostly by looking at what the existing games did. You know, you would hit reset and then disassemble the code and sort of try to reverse engineer it, figure out how they had uh, done these things. And then high-res graphics was one of the machine's secrets that wasn't really very well explained. You know, the easiest things to do were games in low-res, but then, uh, you know, the challenge of doing an assembly language high-res game, that, you know, that was kind of the, you know, the ultimate challenge that it kind of took me a couple of years to work towards, you know, to understand the machine well enough to try to do that. So I heard that you were doing Asteroids clones at first. Yeah, Asteroids was probably my first you know, really ambitious project. Uh, and again, having been inspired by how good this Space Invaders uh, game was on the Apple, you know, I wanted to do the same thing for Asteroids, but that was 1980 and Asteroids was kind of the new craze in the arcades. So I, I spent, you know, almost a year, you know, trying to do, a, you know, a faithful machine language copy of a clone of Asteroids. And did you try and get these games published at the time then? Yeah, I mean, that, that, was, that was really the goal. Uh, you know, having spent my life savings on this Apple computer, I, I, I was hoping to somehow make enough money by programming to kind of earn that back. But, but you know, selling uh, games on cassette for you know, $25 here, $40 there. The Asteroids game you know, th- that I made, I actually found a publisher that was uh, willing to publish it, a Hayden Book Company in New Jersey. But unfortunately, that fell through. Like at the last minute, Atari had uh, kind of figured out what was going on, and they told, uh, you know, they sent out letters to all of the publishers saying, you know, you can't copy our games anymore. So I had uh, I had done the Asteroids game; it was finished, but it's like uh, all dressed up with nowhere to go. <laughs> we couldn't publish it. That must have been a bit disappointing at the time, then. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, by then, I was out of high school. I was a freshman in college, and. Uh, but, you know, the industry had kind of moved on, you know, by that point, you know, there, there were new games coming out that were not arcade game clones, but they were actually uh, original in certain ways. And the one that really, the one that really opened my eyes, you know, as to what was possible with this new machine was a game called Choplifter. 
you know, by flying this helicopter around over the desert, it had parallax scrolling. And it had, it had a sense of humanity, too, because these little characters that you're flying around trying to rescue, they would wave to you when you fly overhead. And if you accidentally squish them, you know, you'd feel bad. You'd, and at the end of the game, it said the end instead of game over. It was, uh, you know, it wasn't something that you would play, you know, endlessly trying to achieve a high score. You know, there were 64 hostages and you could either, you know, you'd rescue as many of them as you could. And then it was over. So, yeah, it was like a little mini movie. Well, of course, in 1984, you did go on to make the fighting game Karateka. What was kind of the story and the inspiration behind that game? Well, I was a freshman in college when uh, Choplifter came out, and it was Doug Carlston, the founder of Broderbund, who sent me the game. I, I had sent him my previous game, uh, which was a kind of an asteroids-like bouncing balls and spaceships game. He said, you know, let me send you our new game, Choplifter, so you can sort of see like where the industry is going. And... Uh, you know, when I saw that Choplifter had a story and that it had smooth animation, you know, wow, I've, I've just been copying the arcade games, but really the sky is the limit, right? A, a game could be anything. And so for, for Karateka, you know, Choplifter was part of the inspiration, but there was a, also another game called uh, Swashbuckler by Paul Stevenson, which, you know, it was a very simple kind of sword fighting game, but it had a large human characters on the screen. You know, the animation wasn't smooth, but you know, it kind of had that idea of a duel. I, I was home for the summer and my, uh, my, my sister and my mom had been taking karate lessons. So I, I took the karate lessons too. And so the idea of doing a game where you'd have large animated characters you know, fighting each other with karate, that was the basic idea. And then combining that with the scrolling and the storytelling aspects of Choplifter, you know, that, that was kind of the you know, the beginning of the project. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. Like the longer I worked on it, the more it, sort of the more ambitious it became, you know, and I was taking film studies classes at the time. I was, you know, watching old silent movies and then sort of seeing how cross-cutting and, you know, camera movement had sort of gradually become the vocabulary of cinema. And it kind of occurred to me that these techniques could be used in games too, but that like early silent film, games were really just at the beginning as well. So it was kind of up to us, you know, programmers to sort of try out the, these elements of, you know, of cinematic grammar and, you know, and see if they could work in games. So Karateka was kind of a mashup of Choplifter, Swashbuckler, Karate, Bruce Lee movies. And then, of course, my all-time favorite film, uh, Seven Samurai by Kurosawa, was in, you know, insofar as, you know, the Apple II's limited resolution and beeps and buzzes could you know, approximate that kind of, uh, you know, really strong graphic composition. You know, th those are sort of the things that I was excited about when I was making uh, Karateka. Well, you mentioned about, you know, the smooth character animation, and that was, you know, what you became famous for, this technique, rotoscoping. I mean, did you use that in that game as well? And how was it done at that stage? And where did the idea come from? I should mention that I actually kept, this was around the time that I started keeping a journal in college, starting in, uh, uh, in 82, you know, so I, I kind of, you know, in my journal, I sort of recorded all of this, you know, these intermediate steps and the things that didn't work and the things, the projects that I tried to do that ended up getting uh, uh, abandoned. But with, uh, with rotoscoping, the, the thing is, when I tried to do animation, it just didn't come out smooth. You know, I could kind of draw, I could, uh, you know, make a, you know, a cartoon character that looked okay. But then once I tried to make it move, it just looked choppy. It didn't have the fluidity of the kind of Disney animation that I loved. 
So uh, I filmed actually my mom's karate teacher, who was the first model, using Super 8 film. You know, this was 1982. It was before video, before home video. So uh, ended up with a you know two minute roll of film that I put on a moviola, which is kind of a you know it's like a reel to reel projector, and you could stop it on a particular frame. And then on a sheet of tracing paper, you know, with a pencil, I would trace the outline of the character on that frame of film. Uh, there was a device called the VersaWriter, uh, which uh, Roberta Williams had used uh, to do the graphics for the early Sierra uh, adventure games. So by tracing the outline of those frames, I could kind of get a sort of a rough jittery outline of the character onto the Apple II screen and then cleaning it up pixel by pixel. It was a laborious process, but then by running those frames in order, it recreated the this illusion of smooth motion, and that's rotoscoping. And that must have been really difficult to fit into the Apple II's RAM. Yeah, well, this was a 16K computer at the time. Of course, you know, when you have many frames of animation, yeah, that eats up memory very quickly. That was a problem for, uh, for Prince of Persia as well, which had even more movements, you know, more frames of animation, because uh, for that character, the character you know, would not only fight, but also you know, be able to run, jump, climb, and so forth. Well, Karateka, when that game came out, I mean, obviously 1984, we had um, Karate Kid, the movie was out as well. It seemed like, you know, karate had taken over the world at that stage. Was that like a, a happy coincidence? And did that kind of help the success of the game? I guess it was a coincidence. I mean, I remember the Karate Kid coming out. That was 1984. That was actually the summer that I went to California for the first time. It was between my junior and senior years of college. I had sent Karateka to Broderbund, you know, my favorite publisher, on a floppy disk. And uh, they said, yeah, you know, uh, we'd like to publish it, but uh, you know, at that time the game only had one level. You know, they, they suggested that I expand it, that I add two more levels, and so I, I flew out to California and spent the summer at Broderbund, and that was the first time that I really met people who were in the game industry. You know, other programmers. You know, the authors of you know my favorite games. Uh, Danny Gorwin was there. Broderbund had published uh, Choplifter, so I was just absorbing all of their. Uh, uh, you know, tips, everything that they had to teach me. And at the same time, the Karate Kid came out in the local theater. So that's uh, that summer that I, that I saw the movie. And of course, that, I mean, it was inspiring, you know, to finish the game and uh, ship it so that I could go back to college and, uh, and graduate. That was kind of the priority that year. It did seem like, you know, you had a lot going on then, obviously, with trying to make these games as well and also studying at the same time. I mean, did did making games affect your studies then? Or was it a hard thing to balance them both? Oh, yeah. I'm afraid I don't think I did a very good job of balancing them. It was, uh, you know, e- either I was working on the game and falling behind on all of my classes and almost failing, or I was trying to catch up on my classes and then neglecting the game for months on end. Uh, I was always kind of feeling like I was neglecting one or the other. And uh, so the vacations was when I could really work on Karateka, you know, over Christmas vacation and over the summer. So that summer of 84, you know, I was really determined to finish the game, you know, by the end of August before I went back to school in September. You know, that that was kind of the, the ticking clock, because if I didn't finish it, I knew I'd go back to school and then, you know, another year would go by. I just wouldn't be able to find the time to really finish it. I do remember that all of the other programmers at everyone at Broderbund kind of seemed to assume that I would just stay there and finish it, that I wasn't going to go back to school. But, but for some reason, I was just kind of uh, stubbornly determined that I was, no, no, I'm going back to finish college in September. You know, I was, I was going to do that come hell or high water. And obviously you worked on something even more ambitious after that, Prince of Persia. I mean, when, when did development start on Prince of Persia then? And what was kind of your 
ideas and original plan for the game. So, so this gets into the uh, the period that's documented in the book you mentioned, in the making of Prince of Persia. You know, I, I started keeping the journal in in college, and so the the making of Karateka is kind of uh, documented in my journals from eighty two to eighty five, and then the Prince of Persia book, you know, picks up my journal in eighty five, and at that point, you know, Karateka is out. It's uh, you know, it's become a number one bestseller, and I. I'm graduating from college and I, I want to do another game, but uh, I also want to write screenplays. So I'm kind of torn at that point between, you know, which of these two careers I should pursue. And I actually took a, a year off after I graduated from college and spent that year writing a screenplay. And uh, I, I had the idea for Prince of Persia. I just wasn't, wasn't really sure which to do first. The idea for Prince of Persia was really uh, inspired by Loadrunner, Castles of Dr. Creep, you know, those a kind of modular puzzly game, the sort of game where you can step on a switch and open a gate and there's a logic element to it. But to combine that kind of puzzly game with the smooth animation of uh, Karateka was the one, you know, sort of the one sentence idea that and the first 10 minutes of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, where Indiana Jones is running, jumping, spikes are springing out of the wall. You, you know, the, you know, cause when I saw the movie, it occurred to me that that's really like the same the actions are the same as you have in a running, jumping, you know, kind of a platform game like Mario. It's uh, it's just that the uh, you know, in video games, the characters just kind of float. They don't seem to have a lot of weight. But to do one where the character would really feel like flesh and blood, that if you fell too far, hit the ground too hard, landed on the spikes, you know, it would really hurt, you know, like as you felt in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, kind of mashing those things together. That was really the idea for Prince of Persia. And then the setting, the thousand and one nights uh, with the, you know, the vizier and the princess and uh, all, you know, that really came from movies, you know, movies like Thief of Baghdad. And of course the original tales of the thousand and one nights themselves. You know, when you played that game, you could tell that you were into film because I mean, it, did it, did it kind of feel like you were trying to make the game as cinematic as possible? Oh, oh definitely. I mean, it's a game that was inspired by movies. I mean, there was Indiana Jones, there was the 1938 Robin Hood uh, from which I, I actually rotoscoped the sword, a sword fighting scene from that movie, uh, because uh, you know my own attempts at you know staging sword fighting, you know, with friends in the Broderbund uh, sport court just didn't have that same excitement as you know when Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone went at it. So yeah, I, w- I was trying to make it cinematic and sort of create the computer game equivalent of those kinds of swashbuckling adventure movies. Well, obviously, that visual look and the rotoscoping was something that got a lot of attention on Prince of Persia. And I was talking a bit earlier on on today's show about when I first saw it at my cousin's house as a little kid, and my jaw just dropped. I was blown away by how realistic and how fluid the animation was in that game. I mean, again, you used rotoscoping on Prince of Persia. Did your technique kind of develop quite far since you did it in Karateka? Well, the big change was that uh, VHS had come in. So whereas the rotoscoping for Karateka in 1982, I had done uh, using Super 8. By 1985, uh, I was able to use videotapes. So I got a VHS camera and uh, I filmed my brother, uh, David, who was uh, 16 years old at the time, running and jumping and doing the moves that I thought would be needed for the game in the parking lot across the street from our high school in New York. You know, the challenge of getting that videotaped footage into the Apple II computer. It was a little different, but just as painstaking as uh, 
what I'd done with Karateka. In this case, I actually set up a film camera on a tripod and took pictures of each uh, freeze frame from the TV screen. You know, did a frame advance, uh, took another picture, and then got that roll of film developed at the photomat, and then took all of those snapshots, lined them up, cleaned them up with uh, black and white, uh, with magic marker and whiteout to create a clean silhouette, which I was then able to digitize into the computer. But again, it still involved cutting out each uh, image frame by frame and then kind of, and then writing the software to kind of flip through them like a kind of a flip book. And it was such a powerful technique as well, though, because like, video games didn't look like that before Prince of Persia. No, there's a reason for that. I mean, it, it, it took a lot of work, uh, a lot of preparation, and, uh, and then the frames of animation just took up all of the computer's memory. I mean, one of the, uh, sorry, one of the frustrations you know, in the development of Prince of Persia was at a certain point, the animation of the main character was done. You know, I had this wonderful little animated uh, character who could run and turn around and jump and, and hang off ledges. But the computer's memory was full, so there was no way that I could create an enemy, an opponent. Uh, sword fighting was not originally planned to be part of Prince of Persia. You know, that was just uh, a bridge too far. You know, it was, you know, the computer just didn't have enough memory to handle that kind of smooth animation for an enemy as well. That actually kind of led to you know, one of the most happy accidents in the making of Prince of Persia, which was out of necessity, uh, I created the opponent, a uh, shadow man, an enemy that could use all of the same shapes of animation as the main character to save memory. But, you know, that gave rise to the idea of the prince jumping through a mirror and his evil shadow self jumps out the other side and then comes back to harass him, steal his potions and so forth. I love that because it was such a powerful idea as well. It was it was also kind of creepy. And I remember, you know, when you had like a fight with him, the way to win it was like to not fight him, wasn't it? Because he was actually like, like you said, a mirror of yourself. Yeah, exactly. In the climactic battle against Shadow Man, every time you hit him with your sword, you yourself lose one strength point because you're fighting yourself. And so if you win the fight, you, you fall down dead. So yeah, the way to win that fight is to put away your sword and merge, you know, with your shadow self. It was, uh, you know, it's one of my favorite things in the game and it was born out of necessity, you know, because I didn't have the memory to create, a, you know, a whole host of, you know, monsters and other enemies and so forth, like, uh, you know, which would be the first thing that would occur to, to me to do today, probably. So you said then there wasn't originally combat in the game. I mean, obviously later on you introduced the idea of guards and there was, you know, more sword fighting in the game. What kind of changed in the development then to make you realize that this had to be in there? It was sort of a series of, uh, I reached that necessity, you know, by stages, you know, first was to say, okay, we've got to have an opponent and then sort of squeezing shadow man in there. Then, uh, squeezing out the, uh, the memory to have sword fighting with shadow man. There it was, it was only, you know, a certain number of frames for the fighting, you know, because I already had all of the other frames for running and jumping and so forth. But, uh, I think there was a weekend where I just said, okay, this is important. It's, it's going to be a key part of the game. We've got to clear the memory out to make this possible. And I just reprogrammed a whole bunch of stuff that was already working, but just tried to make it a bit smaller and also shifted around the, uh, you know, the use of the memory. There was something called the auxiliary language card that had 16 K of memory that wasn't being used. So that by kind of putting the different uh, parts of the code in different places, sort of swapping it out so that the things that didn't need to be available all of the time could sort of be 
be temporarily shut off when they weren't needed. You know, I was able to get that extra memory to, uh, to do sword fighting. And then once it was done, it was just so clearly key to the game. It was so important that I then went on to create the guards, you know, with their flowing robes and turbans. And that, that again, required clearing out a little bit more memory. But in that case, I, if I remember right on the Apple version, it was going to the disc, to the floppy disc for every level to load in the particular shapes of the, of the one enemy that existed on that level. So it was sort of all done by tricks. You know, there was, uh, there was never more than one enemy in memory at a time. If you look carefully, you'll see that uh, each level has its own enemy, and then there's no multiple different enemies on, in a single level. It's because there's, there was a disk access in between. Of course, all of that became unnecessary once we moved on to the other ports. You know, in the PC version, we had more memory, uh, so it got a lot easier. That was one thing, because Prince of Persia was ported to so many different platforms. And did you have much input into the ports then? I mean, was it kind of, did you have to look at quality control and work with the people that are doing the ports? Uh, it was kind of the Wild West. You know, it wasn't like today where ports are planned as a kind of a global strategy by the publisher, you know, which territories and which platforms and so forth. Uh, really, the, the first thing was to just do the Apple II version. Then once that was out, the next priority was uh, to do the PC and Amiga ports. And that was in the U.S. That was through Broderbund. But at the same time, they were making foreign licensing deals. And that was almost like an afterthought. You know, say, so, hey, we, we got an offer to do the, the NEC version in Japan. Or, and now, now there's something called the, the Nintendo. And there's a company in Japan that wants to, to license it for that. So, so Broderbund kind of made all of these deals and then... For like a year or two, we didn't hear anything from it. And then suddenly one day we'd, we'd get a cartridge and say, hey, this, this company in, you know, on the other side of the world, has they've had a team working on it and they've done this port. So sometimes, yeah, uh, they sent us, uh, they kept us up to date. They would send us uh, graphics and uh, storyboards, things like that. Uh, the Japanese licensees were especially diligent about doing that. I mean, they would regularly you know, send facts saying, hey, you want to change this, you want to change that, what do you think? But others, it was just uh, like we were just surprised that the version would suddenly release and we'd see the finished product. And sometimes it was great. Sometimes uh, sometimes it wasn't so great. Uh, the uh, Super Nintendo version was one that you know especially impressed me and everybody because they had gone so far beyond the original. Instead of 12 levels, they had 20. They'd added all of these surprises and different enemies and different tricks. So that was the first time that playing it, you know, I felt like I wasn't playing my own game. I was, you know, I was having the experience of playing it for the first time because I didn't know what dangers uh, lurked around each corner. What was the idea behind the um, the time constraint then? Because you did kind of play the game in real time. Um, you know, most platforms, you had like one hour to complete the game. Why did you implement that? Well, I mean, the challenge in doing a game that tells a story, you know, as opposed to the arcade game model where you have three lives and then at a certain point you get an extra life and so you you know, you can theoretically play forever, you know, try to get a high score. You know, the challenge of a story game is that if you play for like 70% of the story and then you die, do you start all the way over from the beginning? You know, that's kind of frustrating. And with Karateka, you actually did have just one life. And that was, uh, you know, a very unforgiving game in the sense that, uh, you know, you could get 90% of the way towards the end to rescue the princess. But then if you lose a fight... Uh, you have to start the game over from the beginning. Karateka was a short enough game that that was, uh, yeah, it was you know, 1984, you know, that, that was acceptable. 
but because Prince of Persia was bigger, you know, if you've invested, you know, an hour in trying to get to the end of the game to then have to start over, it's just, it's just too punishing. It would be too frustrating. And if I gave uh, infinite lives to the player, then all the suspense would be gone because you would just keep playing and keep dying and playing until you'd reach the end. So what did it really matter if you had died 30 times or 300 times along the way? So the hour time limit was kind of a way to, uh, to try to strike a balance so that the time that you invested to get so far into the game wouldn't be lost, but there was still suspense because you know each, each time you died and had to play the level over again, you were losing time. So you were kind of spending out of a finite resource. You know, my hope was that people would uh, play the game the first time and not quite get to the end. So then they would have to play it again. And maybe in that second playthrough, they would get closer. And then on the third or fourth playthrough, they would have a chance to really get to the end. So in that case, it would be kind of the, the right amount of starting over. Well, I guess that time limit was kind of reflected in real life as well. I mean, because you were kind of up against the clock with the game being an Apple II game. I mean, by 1989, the Apple II was really coming towards the end of its commercial life. Did the game sell well at first then, or did it take time, and was it the ports that kind of helped out there? Well, as you said, like 1989, it, it, was, it wasn't just uh, getting towards the end of the Apple II's life. It was really, it was after the end. You know, the Apple II's peak had sort of been in the mid-'80s, and by '89. Uh, stores were actually delisting their Apple II catalogs. You know, I had the, you know, the painful frustration in '89 of seeing that, you know, even though, I, you know, I just spent three years finishing Prince of Persia and it finally shipped, stores wouldn't carry it. Like I would go into my local computer store and I would see that they still had a copy of Karateka, but they didn't have Prince of Persia because they weren't taking new Apple II games. They just wanted to get rid of the old ones. So it it, it really seemed like I had just spent three years making a game that you know, a few people in the Apple II community would appreciate, but by and large, the world would never know about it. Uh, it was, uh, so we were really counting on the ports to save it. Uh, the Apple II uh, code lent itself very well to the Amiga. So it was actually Danny Groen, the uh, author of Choplifter, who programmed the Amiga port. That was one of the first ones to get done. But it was the PC port that we were really counting on to save it. Well, of course, the game was a huge success when it was ported to these different platforms. And, you know, the reviews I remember reading, um, it was like 90% in pretty much every magazine that I read at the time. Were you um, surprised at how much of a success it was then? Or did, did you kind of see gold in, you know, magic in that code anyway, regardless of what platform it was on? You know, this is where keeping a journal is really valuable because, I mean, if I hadn't kept the journal and if I hadn't actually sort of taken it out and reread all of it and you know, as I had to do in this last year in order to publish the journals as a book, I would probably give you a different answer, you know, with kind of the way that hindsight smooths things over. But reading the journals, like I, like I'm, I'm, I'm faced with the fact of how dicey it really was. It, it was by no means a, uh, you know, a big success off the bat. It actually took years. There was a sort of a period of, okay, it's a disappointment. It's a flop. And then the hope of, okay, well, the PC version is going to save us. And then the PC version shipping and the PC version also being a flop, not because it wasn't good. I mean, the reviews were great. It was just that, uh, you know, stores didn't want to carry the port of a game that had already not done well on the, on the Apple II. And, and a lot of it was the fact that the game was in this sort of small red box. No, we're talking about the U.S., yeah. right? It was because of a different story in every country. 
but this is before the internet. This is, you know, there's no such thing as an international coordinated global marketing campaign. It's all word of mouth. And, uh, you know, by 1990, it really seemed that, that the game was just not going to, was just not going to sell very many copies. It had gotten good reviews, but, uh, you know, but the public that it had reached was very small. It really wasn't until 92, two and a half years after the release of the original game, that sales really picked up. And I kind of woke up one morning and said, oh, it's actually, it's doing pretty well. And that was a combination of things. It was the, uh, it was the success of ports on other platforms in other countries that I, that I, I didn't know about directly. Like I didn't have a, you know, a Nintendo Super Famicom, so I, I couldn't play it. But, you know, but the numbers were coming in and you know, it was doing very well on, on that platform in Japan. And then in the UK, it did well. And, and then in uh, the uh, PC version was repackaged in a different shaped box in the US. You know, instead of the small red box, you know, Broderbund decided to, to spring for a, what they called a candy box. It was kind of an odd shaped trapezoidal box made of a higher quality cardboard. And that was sort of the, that was the kind of box that, that the latest games you know, were using. And so once the game was repackaged, it didn't look like an old 1989 game. It looked like a new game. And so, so the stores and publishers kind of treated it as something new. And then the Mac version came out years late. Right? The Mac version had uh, been in progress all along. But because Apple kept coming out with uh, new versions of the Mac, you know, there was the LC, which had a color screen. And then there was you know, the new Mac that had a, a larger color screen. Each time they did that, the Mac programmer kind of had to not start over but had to uh, kind of re-engineer the code to use a new set of graphics. So it took forever. But the, res- but the kind of the surprising benefit of, of that was that because the Mac version came out two years late, by then there was really a, a market for a, a game like Prince of Persia on the Mac, whereas in 1989, 1990, uh, there hadn't been. You know, it was, it was still too early. So the, the game's success on the Mac plus it being re-released uh, in the new box on the PC, kind of gave it the, you know, the boost that it needed. That was, I mean, that was the spring of 92 when the game finally became successful. Well, I mean, Prince of Persia 2 came out a year later, The Shadow and the Flame in 1993. Yeah. Uh, were you kind of already working on that then, or was that a bit of a quicker process? And how did you go about following up and building on the original game? Yeah. Again, the you know, Prince of Persia wasn't successful and there wasn't going to be a sequel. And then at a certain point, Bertrand said, "Okay, this is successful enough that we do want to do a sequel." But then there was the question of how how do we do it? What's it going to be? You know, I ended up designing Prince of Persia two, kind of doing a bible, you know, with all of the levels and the, the graphics and so forth. But I wasn't actually at Bertrand anymore. I had moved uh, to Paris by then. You know, I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to travel and write screenplays and go to film school. And I was sort of doing that at the same time as I was supervising Prince of Persia, you know, flying back and forth to San Francisco. But it was really the team that had done the PC version of Prince of Persia at Broderbund that kind of went on to create Prince of Persia 2, you know, with me providing the Bible. And, uh, you know, I developed the, designed the levels for Prince 2, you know, on a PC, you know, in my apartment in Paris, and then sending the floppy disks by DHL uh, to San Rafael. There's pre-internet days. Very much pre-internet. <laughs> uh, we were sending faxes. And I imagine having the um, highest spec machines at the time. So, I mean, you know, it was rapidly improving 
in the early to mid 90s you know every year we got a processor that was double the speed of the year before and graphics cards were coming on leaps and bounds did having higher spec systems help with the design of that game and what you could do with it well i well remember uh getting my uh you know my giant desktop ibm pc you know which i needed to develop the levels for prince 2 and plugging it in to the outlet in my little studio apartment in Paris and promptly blowing out all the power in the building. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, I mean, the PC version was, uh, you know, already with, you know, with Prince of Persia one, you know, we had digitized sound, we had uh, MIDI music, you know, my dad had composed the music for the original Prince of Persia you know, on a Steinway piano. And I had then transcribed that for the Apple II into values between zero and 255 for each note. You couldn't really play two notes at the same time. You know, these little beeps and buzzes coming out of the speaker were, you know, the closest that we could approximate music. But then for the uh, PC version, you know, I said, Dad, you know, now, now we can have chords. Uh, so he was so happy. You know, he went and he rewrote the score, you know, with, with several voices. And then uh, Tom Reddig and Broderbund translated that into the, uh, you know, versions for different sound cards on the PC. And then, of course, for Prince of Persia 2, you know, the Broderbund team was able to do a, you know, much more ambitious musical score. I mean, obviously you mentioned that, you know, your background is in film and that's something you've always loved doing. I mean, what was there ever kind of an ambition in the early 90s or the late 80s to actually make Prince of Persia into a movie even at that stage then? Was that kind of at the back of your mind at all? It, yeah, it's funny. I mean, certainly by the early 90s uh, it was. And I remember that, uh, uh, that Doug Carlston, and I talked about it for a bit, whether we could raise the money from some of the licensees to make a movie. We talked about it, but we didn't do it. It, it wasn't until the late 90s that uh, that, that kind of became, uh, yeah, that the idea of a Prince of Persia movie started to get more, more real. But at the time that I was making the first Prince of Persia game, I really saw it as one or the other. That is, I thought that making Prince of Persia was taking me away from my screenwriting. Uh, there was a time uh, also, you know, which you know, which is documented in uh, my journals where I actually stopped working on Prince of Persia for about six to eight months because a screenplay that I had written out of college was uh, showing signs of uh, maybe getting made. And and so I kind of got excited and I spent uh, those months, you know, going down to LA and trying to, you know, trying to move this uh, screenplay along. But then uh, Prince of Persia was kind of languishing and forgotten because you know, I couldn't work on them both at the same time. So it's kind of lucky in retrospect that the, the movie ended up uh, getting stuck, not getting produced. So then I went back to, uh, to San Rafael and uh, picked up working on Prince of Persia again. But, it was, but I certainly didn't imagine at the time that Prince of Persia, this game that I was making on the Apple II, would end up getting made as a movie before any of these other screenplays or film writing projects that I was doing did. I always thought it would have made, um, you know, good timing to bring out the, maybe just before Aladdin came out, because obviously that kind of, you know, it was quite in vogue at that time, wasn't it? Uh, Aladdin was kind of a strange case of parallel development. You know, I, I finally met the director of uh, Aladdin years later, and I asked him because, you know, that came out in 93. It was after Prince of Persia, and they had a Grand Vizier Jafar. They had an hourglass. There were all these elements that were kind of surprisingly similar. So I asked him, like, did the team know about Prince of Persia? And he said, no. But I think what happened is that we were both inspired by the same 1940 movie, The Thief of Baghdad, with Conrad Veidt as uh, you know, Grand Vizier Jafar. And that's, uh, they just both traced back to those original roots of those, those ancient tales. 
I, I got so much uh, like, like letters from like fan mail from kids, you know, in the early '90s who would who actually thought that Prince of Persia was Aladdin. From you know, you know, the baggy pants, the, the turban. It was they didn't realize that it wasn't the same character. Well, obviously, you did get to make a movie a bit later on. I mean, the, the game that kind of inspired that Sands of Time came out in 2003. And obviously, by then, we're talking, you know, PlayStation 2. We've got full 3D hardware, infinitely faster than the Apple II. How did you take advantage of it? And how did the story of Sands of Time come about? Because I know it was quite an involved story at first, wasn't it? Yeah, well, so it was 2001, uh, you know, when I first went to Montreal and... Uh, you know, Ubisoft had acquired Broderbund's uh, games business. Broderbund had kind of gone from games to educational software, become the learning company, been acquired by Mattel. And and so Ubisoft picked up uh, the games catalog and they were interested in bringing back Prince of Persia. I, I was actually a little worried about it because uh, Broderbund had done Prince of Persia 3D, which hadn't worked at all. And, uh, you know, so, the, the, you know, the worry was that, you know, how do you bring that kind of fluid animation and, you know, that kind of split second timing that had made the 2D version so much fun. How can you bring that into 3D and have it still work? You know, the thing that made it exciting and that made it work was to take that action vertically. You know, the idea of running on walls and, and adding parkour. And, and then, of course, the, like the really magical idea, which started as a uh, kind of a technical challenge, but then ended up becoming core to the gameplay and the story, which was the rewind. You know, the idea of using a button on the controller to turn back time so that you could avoid death and try something over and over until you got it right. So all, all those things together kind of uh, created a very exciting gameplay. And then we just, you know, we needed to come up with a story, you know, sort of a take on the universe that would work with that. And the Sands of Time, you know, was a concept that just seemed to fit really well with this idea of a destroyed palace, you know, where everybody, you know, everybody in the world had been turned into sand monsters, except for the hero and you know, a couple of other characters. So that, that kind of created the ideal environment for, you know, parkour, sword fighting, you know, acrobatic action, you know, that on the PlayStation 2, you know, was really adapted for. Well, obviously you did get to make Prince of Persia into a movie that came out in 2010. Um, it kind of blows my mind that it's already been a decade since Sands of Time came out. What was kind of the process of getting the movie made and finally getting Prince of Persia on the big screen? Well, I uh, just... We just shipped uh, Sands of Time, you know, on the PlayStation, and uh, I was I was I'd been living in LA. I'd, I'd you know moved to Montreal for the project, and then when the, when the game shipped, I went back to LA. I pitched uh, the project to John August. He, he was a young screenwriter and producer. He had done the movie Go at, at that time, and uh, he was also a games fan. He remembered playing Karateka, and we were introduced by a mutual friend, American McGee, and uh, you know, I told John that I. I had just done this game, uh, you know, a new version of Prince of Persia, and I wanted to pitch it as a movie. You know, I had a pitch. I, I had a story for the movie, which was different from the game story. You know, the game story was really adapted for the idea that, you know, what you're doing is running on walls, fighting, jumping. You know, there's no button on the controller for, you know, for climbing on a horse or talking to, a, to somebody or, you know, moving through a crowd. All of those things that are, you know, very cinematic you know, the, the sort of the elements you would expect to find in a kind of a, you know, a thousand and one nights adventure movie. None of that stuff was in the gameplay. So in adapting it as a movie, you know, I just kind of took the idea of, you know, you know, the dagger and the, you know, the idea of being able to rewind time, but then built another story around that. And so that's what I pitched to John. 
And I cut together a, uh, a trailer of PlayStation footage as a kind of a fake movie trailer, you know, just to sort of show like what, what the movie might feel like. And so then uh, John and I went together and we pitched that to uh, Disney and to Jerry Bruckheimer. And out of that, I got, um, you know, the uh, assignment to write the screenplay, which was uh, kind of something that like in, in a way I'd started working towards, uh, you know, 20 years earlier, back at the time when I was uh, still making games on the Apple II. And it must have been very satisfying to see that finally, that, that vision achieved on the big screen when the, when the movie came out. Well, it was a long time. I mean, I wrote the first version of the script in 2004 and the movie came out in 2010. So there were, uh, you know, that, that's a long time. I mean, in, bet- in between, they did uh, Pirates of the Caribbean yeah. 2 and 3. So it's, uh, you know, getting the movie to the screen took even longer than the game. Well, I think it's great that you did journal all of this when you were working on, you know, from 1985 to 1993. And like you said, you've actually released these now as a book, The Making of Prince of Persia, The Journals. Tell us a bit about what we can expect from that then and kind of how in-depth it goes. Yeah, well, it's my journal that I wrote at the time. So it's not like a retrospective, let me tell you the story of how this game got made. It's just what I wrote at the end of every day. So you can see the ups and downs of, you know, today, you know, today I did this, this, uh, there's this bug that's driving me crazy. I just can't solve it. And then, you know, all of the business side of it, the marketing, trying to, you know, convince publishers to do the ports. It's, it's all sort of uh, because it's what happened at the time, like without, you know, that kind of 2020 hindsight, without the bird's eye view of being able to put all these things in context, it's very immediate. That's kind of what I like about reading other people's journals is that you're, you're sort of seeing how it really went down. It's also what's sort of embarrassing about publishing your journals years after the fact is because like so many of the things that I wrote are clearly done. You know, I read it now and I want sort of want to slap myself on the <laughs> forehead and say, why couldn't I see what was happening right under my nose? It's, you know, there's one moment where I write my journal. After all, who knows if there's even going to be a games industry this time next year. <laughs> Well, it is wonderful that you can actually follow the progress of these games being made like day by day as well, because that's something that you don't get to see very often. I mean, even at the time, I mean, why did it feel important to document it? Or is that just something you've always done in life? I started keeping a journal in college. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned, I also kept a journal during the making of uh, Karateka, uh, but it wasn't particularly focused on the games. You know, I was just writing about everything yeah. the, the way you do when you're 17, 18, you know, 20 years old. And so I, I just... Uh, took the entries that kind of had something to do with the development of the game and extracted those and, and realized that that, you know, that kind of told a story in its own way, that, that it could make a book. Uh, the challenge as a writer is that I, I couldn't write anything, you know, because it's, you know, the, the interest of it for me is that it's actually what I wrote at the time. So I could take things out, but I couldn't put anything in. You know, I couldn't say, all right, let me, let me explain the context, uh, you know, let me add the information that you need for this to make sense. I kind of had to let the journal tell its own story. So for this new edition, uh, which is published by Stripe Press, a great publisher in the Bay Area, uh, we had the idea of expanding the entries, uh, not with additional text, because that would be cheating, but by putting in graphics and, uh, you know, the documents from the time. So screenshots, uh, the images from the rotoscoping, things like... uh, bug reports, you know, the, the little scribbles that I made while I was uh, making the game. And, and all of those things, which, you know, fortunately, at least the stuff that was on paper, I had kept. 
actually the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, was kind enough to take a whole collection of my working papers and work materials. And so they had sort of saved all that and digitized it. So we were able to use them in the book. And then the other element was that I, uh, I annotated the journals. So sort of, uh, I mean, you can sort of see it uh, in the excerpt of the first chapter that's uh, you know, available as a download on my website. You can see how I sort of, it's as if I went through the journal with a, a blue pen and I wrote in the margins like with my, uh, you know, with hindsight. So when a new character is introduced, I would, I could sort of add an explanation of who they are and like, or draw a little cartoon of them to introduce them to the reader. Uh, and there, there's some entries where, where I would just add a little bit of context in the margins. So it's an illustrated and annotated version, you know, of my old journals. And I, th- I think the combination, you know, of the, the original entries and then the, you know, sort of the modern day annotations kind of makes it a more complete experience and sort of gives it, you know, makes it possible to sort of reconstruct the development process. Well, John, it's been absolutely fascinating catching up with you. And obviously anyone that was, you know, has been a fan of Prince of Persia over the years, the making of Prince of Persia journals, 1985 to 1993, everyone should check that out. And like you said, there's a very generous preview on your website that I will link in our show notes as well. And the book is available on Amazon. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories. Uh, Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) 